Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, glad you're with us on the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We wish we had good martinis for you, but we don't. Uh, we're bad, bad, and crazy today. We're also brought to you by a brand new sponsor. It is Caucus Room. Go to caucusroom.com. It is the social media network exclusively for conservatives. We'll talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. And Jim, we obviously do have some good news. The president of the United States is no longer in the hospital being treated for COVID-19. He came back to the White House uh, yesterday evening, which uh, launched uh, another round of furious media analysis slash condemnation slash lighting hair on fire. Uh, People didn't like that he perhaps left the hospital before they thought he should. Uh, According to reports, the doctors stopped him from leaving on Sunday. So you would think that they've seen some progress that makes them okay with that. Um, Then he, of course, climbed the steps up to the the balcony and took his mask off for photos. The White House says he's projecting strength. The, uh, the, The critics say he's projecting carelessness. And one of the critics that is just absolutely unhinged at this moment is Washington Post columnist Jennifer Rubin. She's recently taken the word conservative out of her Twitter bio, but uh, that's certainly been her role at the Washington Post is to be the supposedly conservative columnist over there. But her tweets yesterday are downright insane to the point where your good friend Cam Edwards, uh, I think seriously urged an intervention from her good friends and family yesterday. Uh, she It's first of all furious that the 25th Amendment was not uh, invoked to stop Trump from being president due to his medical condition and then his decision-making while uh, having COVID-19. Then she says, any doctor who publicly endorses this insanity needs to lose his or her license, period. She wants to know if Walter Reed doctor's malpractice insurance is paid up. She wants the White House to be evacuated, staffers to go on a sick out. My personal favorite, Jim, is she wants Congress to defund Walter Reed, which I'm sure the families of wounded vets are just going to absolutely love. Uh, She wants Dr. Conley to lose his license. She also is now thinking that Pence has a problem because he still wants to sit at the debate, which I believe was the format all along. And now, of course, she wants to cancel the Barrett confirmation hearings because a couple of senators have coronavirus. And therefore, she says they're willing to have colleagues and staffers die so the Republicans can get one more justice on the Supreme Court. Uh, She's been consistently a hypocrite in recent years, Jim, but this is unhinged to a new level. It is. And look, I'm going to make an observation. When you write about politics for a living, And you get feedback, whether that feedback is in the form of emails from readers, whether it's from responses to you on Twitter, uh, responses if your stuff gets posted on Facebook or other social media. Um, You know, in some way you get traffic numbers, you get some feedback on what people think of what you're doing. And in a heavily polarized era, there are a lot of people who want to hear Trump is the worst or on the other side, Trump is the best. And if you write things like Trump is often bad, but this was a good one, or Trump is often right, but he really botched it on that one. You know, not only did lots of people not particularly like it, they, they tend to like, it almost is like confusion. They don't really know what to, to do with it. 
And I think it's very likely that you know Rubin was never you know the the hard right of amongst conservative columnists. I can remember when she was writing you know de facto love letters to Rudy Giuliani back when she was an American Spectator, but that's ancient history of two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Now I believe she's yeah, I don't know whether she's literally said Rudy Giuliani is Beelzebub, uh, or she simply metaphorically compares him to that all the time. But anyway. Rubin has you know, established her brand. Her brand is that whatever the president's doing that day, it is the worst ever. <laughs> and one of the things that's kind of frustrating about it is it takes, you know, there are a lot of things the president does and says that irk me. You know, I, I, I wouldn't want him back at the White House until his doctors were 100% fine with it. Yesterday they said they wasn't completely out of the woods. You know what? I'd really like the president to be totally out of the woods before they send him back to the White House. Fine. Uh, we're taking off the mask. I could have done without that ceremony, but it is worth noting. It's not like anyone was near him when he took off his mask at the balcony at the White House. These are all kind of like details that I think kind of have to be stuck in there. When she said, the pres- why is the president going by helicopter? Now, look, I can understand people thinking, oh, the president is going by helicopter to Walter Reed instead of by limousine. Then, you know, is that an indication that this is an emergency or that something is much worse? But, you know, once she did this, anybody who'd ever dealt with presidential security on, on Twitter, on, on social media, and there are a lot of retired agents who are like, no, it is much quicker and it is, you know, it is much quicker, but it's also just much easier to transport the president by helicopter rather than having to secure all the streets as you take the motorcade from Washington, D.C. to Bethesda. Makes perfect sense, right? We shouldn't necessarily do it. The 25th Amendment, her comment, you know, if you've been calling Trump crazy, and saying that he is too mentally addled or out of his mind or something like that, the entirety of his presidency, it's a bit like the boy who cries wolf. No one's going to pay attention to you if you say, hey, because the president is on medication right now, he should not have the powers of the presidency. I don't think that's a particularly um, plausible argument, but I do want to point out that when you've been saying we should invoke the 25th Amendment, invoke the 25th Amendment, pretty much every day since Trump's been inaugurated, <laughs> no one's going to pay attention to you when you genuinely believe, if you genuinely believe that this is a uh, emergency state and the president's health is interfering with his ability to execute the duties of the office. And finally, the one that just was you know beyond cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs yesterday, the fuming that they should shut down Walter Reed. I mean, the interesting thing is, is that most people, let, let's imagine you're at a party with your friends and you blurt out something really unreasonable. I don't mean like, you know, Adam Gase should be shot out of a cannon into the sun. I mean, something really unreasonable. <laughs> and, you know, your friends would, would gasp. Your friends would, would react strongly. They'd be like, well, how could you say that? Why would you say something like that? And you get that feedback that indicates, oh, I've, I've done something wrong. I've said something I shouldn't. I've said something that is out of bounds of normal discourse for people. And then even if you're passionate about it, you're not supposed to do that. You know, as we've just discussed with the president having this health issue, you're not supposed to hope the president dies. If you do, you're a bad person. If you if you really genuinely run around saying you hope the president dies, besides the fact that the Secret Service may knock on your door to make sure that you're simply mouthing off and not actually planning for the president to die, um, I think it says something about your character. I think it says something about your ability to keep perspective on things. And I think that, you know, indicates, you know, at the risk of getting metaphysical, a very unhealthy soul if you're running around hoping people who disagree with you should die. Um, and with this, this you know, I, I think, I, you know, the, the Cam's observation is, is not nutty. It, it, it is, really does indicate someone who is going further and further out there. Although I suspect, I don't know if this is what, you know, if, if, is this who Jen Rubin always was? Or is this what happens when you put someone in which every extreme comment 
gets positive reinforcement. Lots of retweets, lots of likes, lots of, you know, positive affirmation. You tell them, Jen, that kind of stuff. And, and there's, you know, the rebukes that she can kind of hand, you know, hand wave away. Oh, they're all Trump lovers. Oh, they're all Trump fans. That's, that's why they don't like what I said. You know, it's the, uh, I don't, I'm, you know, Harry Truman, you know, I'm, I'm not giving them hell. I tell them the truth and they think it's hell. You know, like, oh, that, you know, it's the easiest lie in the world to tell yourself. Now, sometimes you're just being a jerk. And when you're calling to shut down Walter Reed, you've, you've, you've lost touch. And you, you know, you, you probably are now a liability to the movement and the ideas you support. Um, so maybe we should be, you know, maybe this is the good martini. I, <laughs> I, I do think, though, that it's very bad to have the entire mainstream media, or at least large chunks of it, operating in an environment where the more incendiary their comment is, the more they are rewarded through this really kind of perverse system of incentives that Twitter has created. Yeah. And there's other people, obviously, we could point to, but I think hers is the most over the top and egregious from people who, at least at one time and certainly in some circles, are still considered serious people. I mean, Jim Acosta, I'm not sure he fits into either of those categories, uh, was upset that the president didn't take questions when he was leaving to go to Walter Reed. And then uh, yesterday he, he said coronavirus is coming back to the White House, which I guess technically is is true if the president's still COVID positive. Uh, and then Chris Cuomo uh, had a rant last night about how Trump's return was uh, hyped up and all propaganda and maybe you didn't like what happened. But the last person who should be talking about uh, hyping up their return from a COVID diagnosis is Chris Cuomo. <laughs> See, here's the thing. There used to be... Um, okay, so we're going to go... We're going to take the time travel back to when I'm a kid and the news... The NBC Nightly News would be anchored by Tom Brokaw. And I don't know a lot about what Tom Brokaw felt about the people he was covering back then. Uh, but they periodically would have the former NBC anchor John Chancellor on to offer commentary. And even then, I think Chancellor was kind of, you know, um, he was not histrionics and furious and pounding the table, right? But there was a distinction there. Tom Brokaw was not going to tell you uh, how he felt about a particular person he was covering. He might rejoice at the falling of the Berlin Wall or something. But by and large, the news anchor's job is not to tell you how he feels uh, outside extraordinary circumstances like, you know, 9-11 or some terrible natural disaster. And that, that thing should be sad. You know, it should be, here's how I feel about this political figure and here's how you should feel about this political figure. Uh, now, you can point to when this, you know, process ended. I, you know, I think Dan Rather, I think we could throw some tomatoes at. I think Keith Olbermann, the idea that he was, you know, NBC believed at first he was doing a news show. And he wasn't. He was doing a commentary and opinion show. Fine, you know. But this blurring of the line. And now the thing is, is that everybody in the news business operates on this incentive for the commentators and the uh, opinion mongers instead of being the, here's the news, here's what's going on, including the Jim Acostas, including the Chris Cuomos. They're all doing new commentary shows, but they're all convinced they're doing news shows. And that distinction is what drives so many people batty. No, that's, or that's say that lack of distinction is what drives so many people batty. Oh, that, yeah, that's exactly right. So, yeah, watching the blue checks on Twitter, particularly the the, the mainstream blue checks, was uh, it's been quite the uh, ordeal for a long time now. But uh, over the past few days, uh, the histrionics have gone to a new level, and, and Jen Rubin is certainly at the very top of that. So. While Twitter doesn't uh, have anything to say about that or put warnings into that, they certainly do crack down on different things that uh, conservatives tend to post. 
And if you've tried to share your political opinions on social media lately, you know it can be a frustrating experience for that very reason. Between the anger, the the virtual shouting, and even fake accounts that, that gobble up your time with arguments that aren't even real, it seems like civil conversation is a thing of the past. But luckily now, there's caucusroom.com, which is a social media network exclusively for conservatives. Caucus Room is an online community for conservatives to gather, encourage, and engage locally. Only real people who are verified conservatives can become Caucus Room members. But Caucus Room will never share your information with anyone, ever. The sign-up process ensures you're communicating with real conservatives. No bots, no trolls. Caucus Room allows you to engage with your neighbors. You have no idea how many conservatives are hiding in your neighborhood. It's a great way to get engaged on issues where you can make the biggest difference locally. At Caucus Room, you can participate in live virtual meetings that are so secure, the platform played host to more than a dozen virtual Republican Party conventions this year. You can also share news, jokes, and find ways to get involved with causes near you, all without fear of 20-somethings in Silicon Valley, whether they work for Twitter or Facebook or YouTube or anything else, stopping you. Caucus Room is made by conservatives for conservatives to get organized and to make a difference. That's caucusroom.com, C-A-U-C-U-S room.com. All right, Jim, let's talk about our second bad martini now. And it might redound to uh, good news for Republicans in a little less than a month. But we cannot obviously classify this as good news because it turns out Cal Cunningham is the moral heir to John Edwards. Uh, he is the Democratic nominee running against Tom Tillis. Tom Tillis had some bad news in recent days. He's COVID positive. But Cal Cunningham has had the worst week because last week uh, it was revealed and admitted by the Cunningham campaign that he had engaged in sexting with a, a political consultant who I believe is based out in California. Uh, and he said, uh, I'm not going to take any questions on this. Please respect the privacy of, of my family. Now, this is the North State Journal. Democratic U.S. Senate candidate Cal Cunningham canceled a planned town hall appearance as a second allegation against him was made public. According to WUNC's Jeff Taberi, uh, Cunningham backed out of a previously scheduled appearance to talk to voters on Monday afternoon. The website nationalfile.com, which first reported the suggestive text messages, identified a second woman claiming an affair with Cunningham. Aaron Brinkman, a lawyer who previously worked on a campaign for Cunningham, said a friend of hers had been in a relationship with Cunningham since 2012. Quote, he's been having an affair with a good friend of mine since 2012, not the woman mentioned in the story. Needless to say, my friend was devastated, but my feeling is if they'll cheat with you, they'll cheat on you, Brinkman wrote on Facebook. So, Jim, a lot of twists and turns here, a lot of uh, soap opera-like drama. The friend is right that if they're willing to cheat with you, they're probably willing to cheat on you. So what do you make of the second revelation now, and how do you think it affects the campaign? Al Cunningham plays the field more effectively than Randall Cunningham. Um, <laughs> 1980s, 90s, Philadelphia <laughs> Eagle fans are going to get that reference. Yes. So, yes. so the first thing, you know, I, I'd be very curious about what percentage of voters care about a candidate uh, cheating on his wife and they, you know, what percentage recoil and then what percentage hear about a candidate cheating on his mistress and then they recoil doubly because it's like, hey, hey, I thought we had something special here. I thought this meant something, you know, and then I'm, I, mean, I feel bad for this woman getting sexted when she finds out that, God, he's been seeing somebody else since 2012 besides his wife. So, uh, just the, also the interesting, the comparison to John Edwards. I just want to take a moment to kind of think back. 
you notice that this story had been floating around the National Enquirer story and it, it really didn't get fully, you know, uncovered and explored and we didn't get all the sordid details uh, until John Edwards was no longer a serious competitor for the presidential nomination back in 2008. The story has been floating around for a while and apparently this he was not, um, you know, airtight in his uh, keeping of the secret. And John Edwards, obviously, people remember his wife had cancer. But this, this was an ugly, sordid story. And I must say, I'm reasonably pleased that John Edwards has more or less stayed out of the public eye. And apparently, he's taken responsibility for raising his daughter with, I think it was Riel Hunter. So, you know, like at least there's some glimmers of responsibility there. But I kind of think about how conditional our rebuke of a political figure's bad behavior becomes once they are quote unquote no longer useful to us right once john edwards was not a not, was not a potential contender then it was okay to denounce him then a whole bunch of democrats who had held their fire all of a sudden ah oh, can you believe this guy ah oh, it's terrible the same way you see lots of democrats saying wow the lewinsky scandal was really bad hey i was alive in 1998 i was following politics in 1998 wasn't, I was writing Congressional Quarterly. I wasn't, you know, fairly well known then. But I remember how many people went to the mattresses to insist there was nothing wrong. This is none of our business. This is between him and his wife. It has nothing to do with how he performs a job. And obviously, subsequently, we've seen lots of people all of a sudden realize maybe that wasn't how they feel about those things. That away from the, the passion of the moments of 1998, they think this didn't work. And in fact, I might contend that the widespread reaction to Bill Clinton and that kind of general assistance that was nobody's business may have made a played a factor in the Me Too scandals that would come in the years afterwards, that generally this wide societal belief that it was perfectly okay for the boss, for the top of the organization to see his employees as sexual playthings, generally created an environment which was probably fertile for sexual harassment to occur. Anyway, I, just it's an interesting pattern here. I hope North Carolina voters uh, are quite discerning about this. Um, look, if you if you have this kind of issue in your past, I think you got two options. You, you know, one, don't run, or if you do, be open about it. Say you've had, you know, Bill Clinton had said we've had troubles in our marriage in our past, and he basically people voted for him believing that they were in the past. They weren't. I don't think it's too high a bar to clear, and I think it's rather frustrating to see this happening over and over again, even with the odd details of learning he's been cheating on his mistress. Hey guys, it's Mock and Daisy from the Chicks on the Right, and we're excited to tell you about our podcast, the Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast. If you've been stressed lately with the information overload on social media, or just don't feel like anything in the news makes sense anymore, don't worry, because we're here to clear things up. Every week, we discuss topics like cancel culture, national crisis, what's happening to our new generations, and if you're just plain tired of people trying to tell you what to do or how to live your life, we tackle that too. Find out more by going to our website, chicksontheright.com, or start listening listening on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to leave a comment or review and subscribe. All right, let's go to uh, the crazy martini now. And Michelle Obama is out with her closing argument, uh, mainly against Donald Trump, but she's saying nice things about Joe Biden, too. And one of the things she talks about is how she believes Donald Trump is is flat out a racist. And uh, the Democrats uh, certainly uh, made that uh, argument for a while now. But uh, Joe Biden has uh, made the argument against himself on this issue a few times in the past. Uh, you remember the the quote about you can't go into a, a 7-Eleven without a slight Indian accent uh, during the 2012 campaign. Uh, if you vote for Romney, they want to put you all back in chains and so forth. But just in this campaign alone, he has now hit the trifecta on uh, 
uh, cringeworthy racial comments. Let's take them in chronological order. This was way back, uh, I believe, last year even, talking about education. We have this notion that somehow if you're poor, you cannot do it. Poor kids are just as bright and just as talented as white kids. Cringe number one. Then, of course, there was his interaction with uh, Charlemagne the God earlier this year. Listen, you got to come see us when you come to New York, VP Biden. Cause it's I a, will. It's a long way until November. We got more questions. You got more questions. But I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. And then yesterday, Trump on the campaign trail, I believe he was in Florida. Uh, this is what he had to say about uh, racial disparity during the age of coronavirus. Geez, the reason I was able to stay sequestered in my home is because some black woman was able to stack the grocery shelf. I got to stay home while a black woman stocked grocery shelves. So, Jim, there's a lot of stereotyping going on in a lot of these comments here, but uh, nobody seems to drop the hammer on Joe Biden the way they drop it on other people. Yeah, and at some point, I guess the idea is it gets priced in. Um, I don't. I think this is one of the reasons why people are infuriated, uh, in, and kind of you know, and some people have this reflexive defense of people who are accused of racism. Because they see people saying things that are, if not racist, let's just say racially insensitive. Let's just say cringe-inducing, tone-deaf, however you want to uh, put it. Biden could have said, a lot of people uh, who don't make as much money as I do and who don't have the opportunities that I do uh, had to work stocking grocery shelves so that I could, you know, so that I could uh, live in isolation. And so he could put it any different way, but he didn't. And I think you take this, I think you take his infamous, you know, you can't step into a 7-Eleven unless you have a slight Indian accent and other things. We probably have encountered someone who's really convinced that they're our friend and they're not. And this person starts to joke around with us in ways where it's like, mm, we don't know each other that well. You, you haven't earned the right to, you know, gently or not so gently mock me or tease me over that. And I think Joe Biden just has this persona with everyone. He, he really walks around convinced that people love him. He really walks around believing that, um, that and I, the, the example of the, the Indian American, I, if you can find it's on YouTube, it was on C-SPAN. The, the guy who he's speaking to didn't bring up being Indian American. He didn't bring up convenience stores or 7-Elevens or anything like that. He'd barely said two words to then Senator Biden and Biden just kind of blurts it all out and he just keeps going with it. And you can see the, the guy's not enormously offended. He's kind of laughing about it, but it just seems like this jerky thing to do of, you know, hey, you're Indian American. How about those 7-Elevens? You know, it's um, it's this sort of shtick that, that, you know, old comedians would do. Actually, the irony is that if you wanted to uh, in, in a in a story in a movie or a TV show, the crass boorish uncle says things like this, and I am sure Joe Biden thinks that not only is he not racist, that he's one of the most um, racially sensitive figures in politics, and that he means nothing but the best and, and all that kind of stuff. But he keeps saying these things, and he never you know, occasionally he'll go back and either a spokesman will be trotted out to apologize or he'll come back and say it. But it keeps happening, and I think what it is is because. This is the way he thinks. There are certain, you know, grooves that are of his brain. I don't mean physically. I just mean, you know, kind of like you know, his, when he thinks of someone stocking a grocery supply store, he thinks of a black woman. And thus he says that. He doesn't realize how that, you know, might rub people the wrong way. Similarly, you know, rich kids can do as well as black kids. And the kind of, you know, I'm sure he believes that he was kind of 
playfully joking around with Charlemagne the God, but it's very understandable that certain African-Americans would not like the idea of a 70-some-year-old white man determining who is authentically black and who's not. So, you know, it keeps happening with him. If he becomes president, we'll probably get more of this. And it's just a little infuriating, really part of a pattern. And the double standard on this is probably the single most infuriating aspect of it all. Well, Jim, let me know if you think this is taking it too far. I think one of the things that differentiates, uh, certainly over the past couple of decades or so, is how people approach minority communities and uh, and also people who are not as, as, as wealthy. And the Democratic approach is, you're never going to get there unless I do it for you. So therefore, I've got this piece of legislation. This will help you. Whereas in general, the conservative approach is, let me get all this stuff out of your way. Let me create uh, conditions where you will have opportunities to rise. Uh, is that a, a fair assessment of generically where the parties have been in the past couple generations? Not only is that accurate in in terms of politics, and I think the Democratic Party, Seth Meyers had this pretty funny sketch. I think it was spurred by the when when Green Book was nominated for an Oscar. And he lamented, it was the title of the movie and the genre he was kind of trying to make fun of was called White Savior. Right? And it's when you make a movie about an important story in African-American history and you spotlight a white person who was connected to it. And he gave a couple examples on it. And the idea was kind of how these can be kind of self-aggrandizing. And um, interestingly, for you know, we hear the term cultural appropriation thrown around. Right? If you are a white politician and you believe that African-Americans can succeed because of you, well, then there is something a little bit racist about that. You're basically contending that they can't survive without you, or at least, you know, some might, some are explicit about it, some are implicit about it. Maybe they just don't even really think about that very hard. But that you can definitely see, and you know, you listen to hear plenty of African-Americans who get kind of irritated about this, by this idea of, I'm going to help you. And the second thing is, is that, look, you know, white progressives have been insisting that they're here to help the, the African-American community for minimum two generations, in fact, several generations. And there are lots of African-Americans who look around at their communities and say, nah, I think we've had enough of your help. I think we can do this on our own. And it's very hard to begrudge them for having those feelings. Wow. Well, more food for thought as we get uh, closer and closer to Election Day. Jim, great to be with you again. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thank you very much for being with us today. Don't forget to visit our new sponsor, The Caucus Room. That's caucusroom.com, social media network exclusively for conservatives. Also, please uh, remember to subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We're always grateful for a kind review and a five-star rating. Remember to get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And please join us on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.